On September 8, 1900, a Category 4 hurricane ripped into Galveston, Texas. The storm was eventually known as the deadliest natural disaster in American history. It reportedly killed upwards of 12,000 people. It swept away 12 city blocks. But the shocking reality of the Galveston hurricane is this. This tragic loss of life could have been largely avoided. This killer storm didn't come without warning. Several days before the hurricane, Galveston received multiple telegraph reports warning that a huge storm was approaching. Sailors were coming into dock having gone through the Gulf of Mexico, warning about terrible seas in the Caribbean. The local weatherman in Galveston was a man named Isaac Klein. He was famous. He worked for the U.S. Weather Bureau. He was a widely published expert. He was kind of a rock star in the budding field of meteorology. And yet Klein completely dismissed all of these warnings as absurd. He had convinced the town of Galveston from building a storm wall to protect them from a storm. He had actually gone in print defending the scientific impossibility that any hurricane could come through the Gulf of Mexico and hit Texas. Klein was asked about the storm wall and why he didn't want it built. And he said, it'll ruin our view of the beach. But on Saturday morning, September 8th, 1900, Klein noticed huge waves pounding the shore. He noticed threatening clouds rolling inland. He noticed the sudden plummet of the barometric pressure, but he did nothing. And then suddenly, the storm hit. Floods came, and there was great ruin. This morning, we're continuing our studies of the gospel according to Luke. And in our passage, Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49, the Lord Jesus Christ himself warns each one of us of a coming flood. Encourage you to take your Bibles to open up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at these few verses this morning. And as we listen to these words, we're faced with a question of eternal significance Will you hear and heed Christ's warning? Or will you disregard his words? And face everlasting ruin. This is what the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Brothers and sisters, in this passage, Jesus, the Lord of glory himself, defines what his lordship means and he displays what your discipleship means. These are really two sides of the same coin. But if you're taking notes, we're going to look at verse 46, Christ's lordship defined. Christ's lordship defined. In the rest of the parable, Jesus displays your lordship. So number one, Christ's Christ's lordship defined. Number two, your discipleship displayed. That's verses 47, 48, and 49. And my prayer is that each one of us would come to Jesus, that we would hear his words, believe his words, obey his words, and disciple the whole world with his words. Number one, Christ's lordship defined. In verse 46, you'll notice at the end of this sermon on the plain, which started way back earlier in chapter six, when the crowds were gathering and they came to hear him preach, Jesus concludes this sermon that we've been meditating on for weeks now by defining what his lordship means. Jesus does this by asking a rhetorical question. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Simply put, Christ's lordship means he has authority to tell us what to do. Now, if you are a sinner, which is all of us, we only let sinners join this church. So if you're, if you're a member of this church, we let you in because you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner. Sinners hate to be told what to do. We have an, a, a natural allergy to authority. We do not like authority and we don't like anyone telling us what to do. But what Jesus does in verse 46 by defining his authority, his authority means he gets to tell us what to do. Now, if you look in verse 45, we always want to put it in context. He just said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, what? Speak. This is a Baptist church. You can let's try that again. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You see, if, if our confession, you're my Lord, and yet I don't obey him, Jesus is saying, you're a hypocrite. You're a bad tree producing bad fruit. That's what he's just talked about. When you see the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, you know that in English translations, that's the covenant name of God. That's Yahweh, right? The, the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. In the New Testament, oftentimes the word L-O-R-D, initial cap L, 
That's referring to Kyrios, that he, he's the master. He's the one in charge. He's the, the sovereign one. He's the ruler. So Jesus repeats this for intensification. He's asking this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, sovereign, sovereign, master, master, and yet you don't do what I tell you to do? So the implication of that question is that if he is Lord, his lordship means he has the authority over us as his disciples to tell us what to do. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Our words are ignored all the time, right? If you've ever been a parent, this is kind of comes with the job, right? I mean, or maybe you, you have, you're, in a, you're a boss, you have people that work under you or work for you. You have the role of, a, 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 of, a, of, a, of an employer. Well, our employees and our children don't always do what they are told to do. Amen? amen. All the children can say amen because you, you can agree with that. You don't. You see, we, we, we tell our kids when they were little, you know, Listen, if, if, if you, hear, your, if you hear, hear one of our children you know, kind of talking back, we would say, listen, mommy said do this, so do it all the way, right away, with a happy heart. But if we're honest, if we profess to be followers of Christ, there are times that we don't do what he says all the way, right away, with a happy heart. But brothers and sisters, Jesus has words that carry with them absolute authority. I can't even get Siri to do what I want it to do. It may be by accent. My words don't have the authority. My words are neglected. My words are often disobeyed. But Christ's words carry the authority of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. His lordship means he gets to tell us what to do. Now, I want you to see this illustrated in two passages that you, you only have to turn to. because You're going you're to know them off, off heart. Right after this passage. So the chapter divisions are not helpful. But what comes after chapter 6 in your Bible? Oh, wow. You guys are tracking me. Chapter 7. What's the very next passage after Jesus gives these words about his authority? It's the passage about the faith of the centurion. Remember that story? And let me just remind you, that passage is an illustration of this text. Okay? Okay. This centurion, a Roman soldier who's a believer, who has a, a servant who's sick, and he sends word to Jesus. Remember? And this is what he says in verse 6. It says, it says, when Jesus was not far from his house, the centurion sent friends and said, listen, Lord, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I don't even presume to come to you. But listen, Say the word. Just say it. Just say your word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, go and he goes and another come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus hears these words, he marvels and turns to the crowd and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. 
So not only does the Roman centurion have incredible faith, he has incredible insight into the lordship of Christ. Christ's words are to be obeyed. What he says goes. Christ's all-encompassing lordship, all-encompassing authority, and our obedience as disciples are two sides of the same coin. One other passage to illustrate this, the Great Commission. Remember in the gospel according to Matthew, the very last verses in Matthew are the Great Commission. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus said to, him, said to those disciples, all what? Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there you see again, what does it mean for him to be the risen Lord? He's the one who has all authority. And our discipleship means that we not only obey his commands by his grace and for his glory, but we seek to teach the nations to obey everything he commanded. Think about that. Jesus's last command was to go teach the nations everything he commanded so that they might obey him. That's amazing. If you are on FBC serve, you may have seen that email that Christina Schott sent out. The Lord has brought the nations to Northern Virginia. So let's be praying as a church how we might use the opportunities that he's given to us to be able to disciple the nations who are among us. So let me just ask you this. You might be sitting there thinking, okay, you've been talking about obedience. You've been talking about obeying the Lord. Give me some practical things. Like what can I do practically? Okay, well, let me just give them to you really quick. Here it is in context. What can you walk out of here, walk out of here today thinking, how can I obey Christ faithfully with this idea of lordship? Well, what has he just said in the sermon on the, on the plane? Verse 23, rejoice. Verse 23, leap for joy. Verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who disparage you. Verse 28, turn the other cheek. Don't withhold your cloak. Verse 29, verse 30, give. Verse 31, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Verse 35, be merciful even as your heavenly father is merciful. Verse 36, don't be judgmental, but forgive. Verse 37, remove the log from your own eye first. Verse 42, do you see Jesus, he's giving this exhortation to lordship after he's given us all of these practical commands. And so the question for us is as a church, we not only want to be an obeying church and a believing church, we want to be disciples who are helping each other live this out in our daily lives. One of my favorite verses in the book of Romans comes to in chapter 16, verse 19. That's the chapter where we kind of skip because it's that list of names, right? Like Urbanus and all these people that we don't know Paul's saying hi to. Chapter 16, verse 19 of Romans, Paul says about the church of Rome, he says, your 
obedience is known by all. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something is like you, some of you won't be here in six months. The Lord's going to take you someplace else because of your job or because of, of, of a whole host of things, right? Wouldn't it be great? You mentioned Frank County Baptist Church. Oh, yeah, that's that really obedient church in Northern Virginia. I've heard of them. They, they just love they love God's word. They love putting it into practice. Lord, brother says, let's, I pray that for us, that we would be known as believing the truth, but that we would be known as a people who are transformed by his grace so that we obey the truth in word and in deed. Let me just take a moment just to encourage the members of our church. I see so many of you serving faithfully, constantly, humbly. And I just want to encourage you to say that is God's grace in your life. And I thank God for you as one of your pastors. I thank God for you. And I want to say this text is telling you excel still more. Excel still more. Let us as a church not grow weary in doing good, but let us by his spirit continue to stir up holiness in the sight of God. For those of us in, our, in this church who you, you, you think, well, I want to serve, but I don't really know where to serve or what opportunities there are for me to serve. Tonight is a great opportunity. Go ahead and the information's on the bulletin for the members meeting tonight. We'll be talking about areas of opportunity where you can serve. If, you're, if you don't have any place right now where you're serving. Our obedience, listen, to Christ. Listen does not earn God's acceptance in Christ, okay? Don't hear me when I talk about obedience. Don't immediately think, oh, that, that's the path to acceptance to, with God. No, no sinner has ever obeyed their way into heaven. No sinner has ever obeyed their way into heaven. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We see this in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. That we're saved by grace through faith, but then he what? After he saves us, he prepares good works for us that we might walk in them. So brothers and sisters, let us be clear about what Christ's lordship means. I want you, this is something I was going to tell the kids to do, but then I thought, you know what? I'll just tell everyone to do this. If you have a pen or a piece or a pencil, take your bulletin out if you have one. And I want you to write two words. I don't normally do this, but this will be a little group participation here. Write, write these two words on your bulletin. Write the word no. And then next to it, write the word Lord. Write the word no and write the word Lord. Now listen, what verse 46 is telling you and me, it's simply this. These words cannot remain side by side. You have to cross out one of them. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you circle the word no and you cross it out. We don't tell our Lord no, ever, <laughs> Because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. The only way to serve the Lord is to forever cross out 
the word no. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what area of obedience is the Lord Jesus Christ calling you to this morning? I pray his spirit brings you clarity that you might answer that question. Christ's lordship means he has the authority to tell each one of us what to do. You don't make the Lord the Lord of your life. He is the Lord. The real proof of Christ's lordship in our lives is not whether we hear what Jesus says, but rather we actually do what he calls us to do. That is what Christ's lordship defined looks like. Number two, your discipleship displayed your discipleship displayed in verses 47 to 49 Jesus he illustrates what our discipleship looks like he gives a two-part illustration you'll be familiar with this because of Matthew chapter 7 which has a very similar parable Um, there's a famous song written about that y'all know this song the wise man built his I'm not going to sing it but we we were going to sing it but then I did, we didn't sing it. Um, but if you don't know that song, kids, if you don't know that song, ask mom and dad or ask anybody this afternoon and we'll, you can learn it. It's a great song. But if you're, Lord's, if you're the Lord's disciple, if you're his learner, if you're his follower, if he is your master, then you come to him, Jesus says, you hear him and you do what he says. But before we look at what he says, I want you to just notice for a moment what Jesus is doing. Oftentimes what Jesus does in the Gospels, he borrows and pulls images and teaching from the Old Testament scriptures because he's aligning himself as the Lord with what he has said through his servants, the prophets, from the very beginning. So when Jesus is describing two ways to live in Luke chapter six, the path of obedience and the path of disobedience, when he talks about the flood, when he talks about these images, you should think in your mind, I've heard this before. I'm just going to try to remind you, does this sound familiar to you? Okay. This old man, he was dying. He knew he didn't have much longer to live. He'd led the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. He'd seen God do amazing things. He knew the people were prone to unbelief. And so for his final sermon, he says in the host and in the midst of all of Israel, today I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life and love the Lord your God and obey his voice and hold fast to him. That man's name was Moses. And his message was clear. There are only two ways to live. Years later, there was another man in the midst of Israel. He was a wise man. He was a prophet. He meditated on God's law day and night. He was a man who led the people of Israel into the promised land. And at the end of his life, he stood in the midst of Israel and he said, put away. Put away the gods of your fathers that they serve beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This man's name was Joshua and his message was clear. There are only two ways to live. 
Years later, there was another man who was a prophet of the Lord. He frightened the king because he always told the truth. One day, this man went atop a mountain called Carmel and he stood all alone. On the other side, there were 450 prophets of Baal. And right before he called down holy fire from heaven, he turned to the people and said, quit wavering between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. This man's name is Elijah, and his message was clear. There are only two ways to live. And then years later, there was another man who was a prophet. He lived out in the wilderness. Everyone thought he was crazy. He wore a camel skin coat. He had locusts and wild honey for dinner. But he was a great preacher, and all the people came out to hear him preach at the Jordan including the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. And he looked them right in the eye. And he said, you brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and flee from the wrath, to caught, from, of, the wrath of God because you're either wheat that's gathered into the barn or your chaff that's gathered up to be burned. This man's name was John the Baptist. And his message was clear. It's only two ways to live. And then we get to our passage. This man, Jesus, had made quite a name for himself. He'd performed signs and wonders in the midst of all of Israel. He'd healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He announced and displayed that he is the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God. Crowds flock to hear him preach. He comes down from the mountain. He opens his mouth and he preaches the, one of the most devastating sermons that's ever been preached. And he says at the conclusion of his sermon, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man who builds a house, who digs deep and lays a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house, it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against that house, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's telling us what the whole Bible has told us, that there's only two ways to live. Will we hear the words of the Lord, believe them, and respond in faith and obedience? That's what Jesus is saying to us. And he does this by way of this vivid illustration. You don't have to be an architect to understand what Jesus is saying. There's two different ways he describes of building a house. It's very clear. It's very simple, very straightforward. The true disciple, Matthew 7 calls him a wise man. He's the one who comes to Christ, hears his words, and puts them into practice. He acts on them. He, he builds a house. How does he build the house? He, he digs deep, right? And he puts a firm foundation. He builds it on, on a rock. And then when the storms come, when the floods rise, the house is secure. The false disciple, the hypocrite, the fool, Matthew says, is the one who hears Jesus's words, but doesn't act on them. Um, you've heard the phrase, 
words come in, in, in your one ear and go out the what? The other. The other. That's exactly what Jesus is describing here. They, 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 hear, they hear the same words, but they don't do anything. They don't respond. No digging required for this house, right? You just, it's almost like a tent. You just set the foundation, right, there's no foundation. You just set the house like a tent just on the topsoil. No digging, no foundation at all. But then Jesus says to both of these people, a storm is coming, a flood is coming. Just like God promised Noah that a flood was coming, Jesus is promising us in this passage, a flood is coming. A flood of judgment is coming. The rain showers are coming and the streams are gonna break and the floodwaters are gonna rise. And at a time when you don't expect, they will break against your home. And Jesus is asking us, just look at this. Do you, when that happens, do you want to be in a well-built home with a firm foundation? Or do you want to be in a puny, unstable tent? Jesus is displaying for us what true discipleship means. If we are his disciples, we'll hear his words And put them into practice. So Jesus asks each one of us this morning. What kind of home have you built for yourself? Will the home you're living in survive this coming storm, this approaching flood? Have you truly come to Christ? Are you listening to his words with a heart of faith? And are you obeying what he says? For those here who have come to Christ, who are hearing his words and by faith, you're putting his words into practice, not perfectly, but you're striving to put his words into practice. Jesus gives you assurance. By his spirit, Jesus promises you, you, your house will survive the coming flood. But Jesus, the tone of this passage is not one of assurance. It's one of warning. Jesus warns those who aren't obeying his words. He says, you're not my disciple. You can go to church and not be a disciple. He says, your home won't survive the flood of judgment that's coming. And he says that your life is headed to eternal ruin. In the Old Testament, this picture of a flood, this picture of a storm is the image the prophets always use to describe the day of the Lord. When God will come and judge the world. Now, when you think of a storm, I want you to think big um, even even bigger than that hurricane in Galveston. Y'all, y'all know the Great Red Spot, right? You know what that is? The Great, Great Red Spot on what planet? Anybody know? Jupiter. Okay, what are you, NASA workers here? Okay, Jupiter. Big, huge, Great Red Spot. The average hurricane on Earth measures 250 miles across. The Great Red Spot on Jupiter, the reason it moves around is because it's a hurricane. It's an oval-shaped hurricane 
7,500 miles north to south and 15,000 miles east to west. It's large enough to put three planet Earths inside. And NASA scientists believe that the winds are 250 miles an hour and they understand that the storm has been raging there perhaps as long as 350 years. In this passage, Jesus is like the cosmic weather forecaster. And he promises that all of humanity is in the eye of a coming storm and subsequent flood that makes the great red spot look like a spring shower. This will be the most frightening storm to ever hit. Because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And on that day, the only safe refuge will be for those who have fled by faith into the ark of Jesus Christ. The only way, the only way to be saved and rescued on that day is to flee this day by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling anyone to turn from their sins and to trust in him, to trust his words. The one who speaks these words in Luke 6, of course, is the one who we will read about, who will go to the cross who will be obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus bore the hurricane of God's wrath for his people. He drunk the bitter cup down to the bottom. It's so fitting that the curse of Adam's children fell upon Christ because he was the one wearing the crown of thorns. He rose again for our justification. He ascended into heaven. He's ruling and reigning this morning and he's calling the whole world to turn and to trust in him, to receive him in the empty hands of faith. He calls the world to repentance and obedience. You realize that's what the mission of the church is, to bring about the obedience of faith of the whole world. And that's what Christ is summoning the world to this morning. And that includes you. Have you trusted in Christ? Or are you just playing games? There is, listen, I've got good news for you. There is something infinitely greater for you in Christ than just playing religious games. Namely, Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. You get him. You get the son of his beloved love to be yours forever. What do we have to offer the world? Christ in all of his glory and grace. When he, the most loving things in the world he can say to us is follow me. We get him. The rich young ruler. What do we got to do to inherit eternal life? He says, here's what you need to do. Obey the commandments. I've done all that. Okay, well, here's one thing. One thing you lack. Sell all you have 
Give to the poor. Come and follow who? Me. What does he get in that? What does he get in that equation? He gets Christ. Follow me. Have you ever thought about how amazing this? The, The Savior of sinners has said to us in the gospel, you get to follow me. That's the best news in the world. I get to follow Christ. The way that you follow him is not by your works. It's not by your obedience. It's simply receiving him, receiving his righteousness by faith alone, by grace alone. And then by his spirit, he transforms us from the inside out. He gives us new hearts and we give the power to follow him, not perfectly, but faithfully in this world. Knowing that we've been accepted and forgiven and cleansed. Jesus will later say, blessed are all those who hear the word of God and keep it. So, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, trust in him. Repent of your sins. There's only two ways to live. You're either building your life on his words or you're building your life on a foundation that will fail you in the end. Kevin DeYoung wrote these words nearly a decade ago in a book entitled The Whole in Your Holiness. He said this, quote, the whole in our holiness is that we don't really care much about it. My fear is that we rightly celebrate all that Christ has saved us from, but we are giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. And then he asked this question, shouldn't those most passionate about the gospel and God's glory also be those most dedicated to the pursuit of godliness? Brothers and sisters, listen, as a church, it is really easy to point out all the problems in the world. That's easy. Christ calls us to judge ourselves first. The question for us is, as a church, how are we being lax? How are we falling short? How are we failing to live out this glorious calling Christ has given to us in the gospel? Listen, with apologies to Frank Sinatra, I did it my way is hardly fitting of any disciple of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, we're not going to say I did it my way. We're going to say I did it his way. I did it relying on his grace. I did it through him who strengthens me. This morning, we began our time thinking about Isaac's storm. Think about that. It became known as Isaac's storm. The Galveston hurricane of 1900. Isaac Klein ignored the warning after warning until it was too late. And when that category four storm with 150 mile an hour winds and a 16 foot storm surge hit the city like a tidal wave, thousands drowned, 
Thousands were swept to sea. 3,600 buildings were destroyed with over $1 billion worth of damage. But miraculously, Isaac Klein lived. He lived to see the devastation afterwards. But he lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost his family. He lost his home. He lost his name. He ignored all the warning signs of the approaching flood. He refused to hear and to heed the truth until it was too late. And he lost everything he held dear. One day, maybe this year, maybe this month, maybe today, you will lose everything you hold dear. One day, unless the Lord returns, you'll die. Your body will grow cold and you will slip into eternity. What you and I need, what we desperately need, is someone who has conquered death. Someone who promises to hold us fast and to be by our side and to shepherd us into our Father's house through the judgment. This is our only hope. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you deserve perfect obedience because you're good and you're always good and you always do good. Help us to love you. Help us to praise you and to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. In the power of your spirit and for the glory of the Savior who died and rose again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.